From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 2nd. So I want to start by saying that wherever you are listening from, I hope that you're holding up okay. I've had a lot of conversations over the last week about the whiplash of this pandemic moment, feeling like we were finally stepping out of the tunnel into the light, and now we have the Delta variant surging. I joked with friends over the weekend that this feels like the last hurrah for hot vax summer. So here's the latest. On Friday, we hit this milestone that we haven't seen since February. 100,000 daily COVID cases, according to the CDC. Also on Friday, Florida reported its highest one-day total of cases since the pandemic began. At the same time that cases are rising, people are getting vaccinated at faster rates than we've seen since the beginning of the summer. In fact, we found out this afternoon that the U.S. has now hit President Biden's vaccination goal a month late. 70% of adults have now received at least one shot. But experts say that this surge is going to get worse before it gets better. I don't think we're going to see lockdowns. I think we have enough of the percentage of people in the country, not enough to crush the outbreak, but I believe enough to not allow us to get into the situation we were in last winter. This was Dr. Fauci on Sunday on ABC. But things are going to get worse. If you look at the acceleration of the number of cases, the seven-day average has gone up substantially. There are so many questions right now. Questions like, how long will this go on? What does all of this mean for kids? What are we supposed to do when we go inside a store or a restaurant? With all of that in mind, we want to know what questions you have about this current COVID moment. Tell us by recording a voice memo no longer than 30 seconds with your question and send it to us at postreports at washpost.com. Be sure to say your full name and tell us where you are. We may include your question on the podcast later this week. Again, send that voice memo or even a written question to postreports at washpost.com. Now, let's get to another story you need to hear about today. We've been talking about it for how many years now through how many past administrations. The country needs the infrastructure we're doing right now. A month ago, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia made it clear how long Congress has been working on infrastructure, even before Biden took office. Infrastructure. 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 And Infrastructure Week was a running joke throughout Donald Trump's presidency. Since it's Infrastructure Week, I'm wondering if the president... uh... (laughs) Is it Infrastructure Week? But now, as Biden enters his eighth month as president, there has been a breakthrough. The Senate finally took the first significant step towards bringing infrastructure legislation to the floor. That's reporter Tony Rahm. He covers Congress for The Post. I mean, we've been talking about fixing the country's inner workings for so many years that it's become this, like, own little joke in Washington about Infrastructure Week, but we actually are now in Infrastructure Week since the Senate has put forward about a $1 trillion plan in actual legislative text. And so that debate is now actually starting this week. And this is a pretty extensive bill, right? I mean, I saw videos of people carrying it around the Senate over the weekend. It looked like reams and reams of paper, I think 2,700 pages. 
Yeah, 2,702 pages if we want to be exact (laughs) about it. But yes, it is a very, very large bill. It touches basically every part of the U.S. economy. It puts forward updates and upgrades to roads and bridges and highways. It makes one of the largest ever investments in railways, probably the largest since the creation of Amtrak. It puts billions of dollars towards fixing high-speed internet in the country and fixing up airports and ports and seaports and even aspires to replace every lead pipe in America. So we're really talking about a substantial piece of legislation that, at least in the eyes of the lawmakers who wrote it, would be a historic investment in the United States. And what are the stakes here? Like, why do we need a comprehensive infrastructure bill like this? Yeah, if you talk to folks like Senator Rob Portman and Senator Kirsten Sinema, who put together the legislation, they will tell you to just look in their states. They point to examples of things that have been neglected for so long that federal investment could help fix. And so, you know, I just mentioned one, uh, which is the nation's water infrastructure, for example. We've known for so many years that there are lead pipes and contaminated water in communities across the country. And we've heard for years that there is a great need for federal investment to fix those problems. And now with legislation like this making its way through the Senate, lawmakers would say that that money is finally here, that once Congress acts, we'll be able to be begin the work of fixing those problems that we have long known exist, but yet haven't been able to do much to fix. So it seems like for months there has also been this conversation about what actually is infrastructure. Is infrastructure just physical things like roads and uh, bridges, or can infrastructure be interpreted more widely to include things like childcare, things that continue to help the country run? So for that more human end of infrastructure, is that included in the deal that was struck this weekend? It does not, but that doesn't mean that the fight over those categories of spending is anywhere close to finish. So remember how we got here. President Biden said from the very beginning he wanted to get a bipartisan infrastructure deal, especially after the $1.9 trillion stimulus passed earlier in the pandemic, you know, the first legislative victory on Biden's behalf, uh, didn't include any GOP support. So there were multiple rounds of talks, and in the course of that, Republicans repeatedly said that they didn't like those other categories of so-called social spending, what the White House, I think, would call human infrastructure. So the bipartisan deal, this $1 trillion package that the Senate is starting to debate, really hews to that strict definition of physical infrastructure, the building stuff kind of approach to infrastructure. But Democrats have said that they're going to pursue a second package, which could be valued at about $3.5 trillion that would include many of these things. And that includes the expansion of federal safety net programs to help families and children, expansion of Medicaid to cover uh, additional kinds of care like dental and vision uh, and other things to address issues like climate change. That second package is something that Democrats have said they plan to move in tandem with the infrastructure bill. So, you know, we're not seeing the end of that fight. Democrats have said they're not going to abandon that spending simply because Republicans didn't like it. Hmm. So for this deal that has now been struck in the Senate, how much is it costing and how does the Senate plan to pay for all of these infrastructure upgrades? So the bill comes in at a little bit over $1 trillion, and at least according to the lawmakers, it is fully paid for. And they do this in a number of Perhaps unexpected ways. You know, the big fight, at least initially, was over tax increases. That's what President Biden had sought. He wanted to raise taxes on corporations in order to pay for infrastructure. And I imagine Republicans were not game for that. Yeah, it was a total non-starter for Republicans, which, you know, obviously they wanted to protect what they saw was their crowning achievement, which was a series of tax cuts enacted under former President Trump. 
Republicans had countered that they wanted to impose what they call user fees on the entities that rely on infrastructure. And so, and so that in, could include things like toll roads, for example. But Democrats said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't good enough for us either because President Biden had promised he wasn't going to do anything that effectively raised taxes on average Americans and a user fee could conceivably be passed down to the average American family who might have to pay more in gasoline taxes, for example. Hmm. So in order to get away from that and to actually create a bipartisan partisan compromise that could pass the Senate. We get this like series of pay-fors included in this $1 trillion infrastructure proposal that are pretty wide-ranging. Some of it would reclaim unused money from past coronavirus stimulus packages. Some of it would rely on heightened enforcement of fraud around the unemployment insurance program, for example. There are even some provisions that seek to raise money by uh, you know, collecting unpaid taxes around cryptocurrency, which you wouldn't expect perhaps hmm. to be part of an infrastructure bill. Uh, and so when you look at the list of pay-fors, again, lawmakers say that this covers the cost of the legislation, but there is a growing number of experts who really question that math. They also see in this list a number of potential budgetary gimmicks. And so we could see in the coming days a war of numbers, essentially, where one camp says, trust us, it's covered, and the hmm. economic gains of infrastructure reform are so great, it doesn't matter anyway. And a second camp says, well, hey, wait a minute, these numbers don't add up. This does, in fact, add to the deficit. And as you mentioned, Biden's goal here was to come up with something that Republicans would be game to support. So what are the numbers of the Republicans in the Senate who are on board with this deal? And tell me a little bit more about the process to really make something that is truly bipartisan. Yeah, as of right now, it's bipartisan. Remember, the group of lawmakers that put this together, they call themselves the Gang of Ten. It's five Democrats, five Republicans that came together and over the course of you know a good number of weeks really hashed this out in late night meetings and Zoom calls that at times were you know nearing collapse. There were moments where things almost fell apart over issues around broadband and transit spending, for example. But they ultimately got there. They got across the finish line. So they got the 67 there's this expectation that if they keep everything together and there aren't too many significant changes to the legislation, that they'll be able to get at least 60 at the end of the process. But it's all a big if, right? It depends on what happens in this debate and any potential tweaks to this thing or if the numbers start to come back in a funky way that scares some deficit-minded Republicans. So it's a really delicate balance in the days ahead. And what are some of the criticisms that are being made about this deal in terms of what it includes and what it doesn't include? Yeah, so for folks on the right, it really probably is going to come down to whether it's paid for. We're all awaiting an official score from the Congressional Budget Office, which does the pluses and minuses on different legislation to determine their deficit impact. And it could be the case that CBO comes back with an unfavorable number showing it adds to the deficit. And so the real test for the authors of this bill you know, is going to be, can they convince folks that the economic gains of infrastructure reform are so great that it's worth passing anyway? There are some Democrats who are concerned it doesn't go far enough. Remember the plan that President Biden put forward earlier this spring included $2.2 trillion of infrastructure spending. That's much more than the roughly $1 trillion plan that we have now. But for them, that's why this second package is so significant. That's why you're hearing progressives in the House and Senate say, we're not going to move the bipartisan bill unless we get this second $3.5 trillion package. 
And that's a budget deal that Democrats can move on their own using a special procedure known as reconciliation, which only requires a simple majority in the Senate. So you're going to catch flack from both sides potentially, but lawmakers think that they have done just enough to keep folks together, at least in the Senate, and pass this bill maybe even as soon as this week. But is there a world where ultimately the more progressive end of the Democrats end up refusing to vote for this bill if there is not an accompanying other bill that includes all of these social issues that that they've been asking for? Oh, I mean, they simply won't vote for it if there isn't that second bill. And in the Senate, it may not be as big of a deal because they're going to proceed on this legislation and then immediately turn to that $3.5 trillion budget deal before lawmakers depart for the recess. That is the so-called two-track strategy, in the words of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So the Senate has made its pledge to do that. But the message from folks in the House as recently as this weekend is, we're not touching the bipartisan deal unless the Senate also sends over that reconciliation package. So they're kind of holding it hostage in order to get the extra spending that they're seeking. And remember, it's significant in the House because Democrats only have a few votes to spare. It's not like House Democrats have dozens and dozens of votes they can afford to lose in the course of this. They have to basically keep the party together if they hope to get what they're aspiring to pass in new investments. So what is the process going forward? How quickly is this actually going to be able to happen? Yeah, the word quick in the U.S. Senate typically don't go together, but the Senate (laughs) is trying to move as quickly as it can with the goal of finishing this bill as well as the reconciliation bill before their planned recess. So there's a hope, I guess, that the infrastructure bill could be finished in the Senate this week, and then the budget deal could be addressed in the Senate next week, and then everybody can get the heck out of town, go on their vacations, and come back sometime in September. And then that would leave it up to the House to decide if they wanted to come back early and begin to deal with these legislative issues, or if they wanted to come back as planned in September and start to sort through it then. In some ways, you know, things will move quickly over the next few days, perhaps, but it's just the beginning of what could likely be a very long legislative process. I'm also curious. I mean, we've had so many discussions about whether or not Biden could be game to get rid of the filibuster or change the legislative process to make it easier for Democrats to pass legislation unilaterally. And so the fact that they seem to have, in fact, struck a deal with Republicans, at least in the Senate, what do you think that says about how Biden is doing as a deal maker? Well, remember, it's yes, they have struck a deal on the infrastructure piece, but they haven't struck a deal on the rest of Biden's agenda, right? That's why Democrats are forging ahead with this reconciliation package, which they plan to do on their own, bypassing GOP opposition. The Democrats have basically been able to take advantage of this legislative maneuver to to, to get the categories of spending they seek, to deliver on the policies that they had put forward in the course of the 2020 campaign. That's things like fixing health insurance and addressing concerns around immigration potentially and combating climate change, obviously. So the concern about obstruction from the minority party certainly is still there in the eyes of some Democrats who think that they shouldn't have to even use reconciliation in the first place to get what they want. But it is also true that Biden has done a great deal and his aides have done a great deal to help broker this bipartisan compromise. I mean, I've been up on the Hill basically every day for the better part of the past few months. And I can't think of a meeting with these senators that didn't involve White House aides. Like most of the time, the Gang of Ten was getting together to hash out infrastructure reform. Brian Deese was there. That's one of the president's top economic advisors. And Steve Reschetti, another one of the president's closest advisors. They were 
often shuttling in and out of the room or zooming in late at night to talk to lawmakers because the White House really recognized that it needed to be hands-on in this process to get a deal that could work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it really is, in so many ways, a 180 of sorts from the process we saw play out earlier this year. I mean, remember the first attempt that the White House made at bipartisan talks failed. Republicans never really got close to the kind of spending the White House wanted. There was a lot of public sniping over who promised what and who broke those promises. It just didn't work out. And so there was a concern coming out of that that maybe there was no chance at a bipartisan deal. But the second group got together, the White House was really engaged, and ultimately we have the legislation that the the Senate is debating today. Tony, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that it often feels like Groundhog Day with Infrastructure Week and our ever-present talk about whether or not an infrastructure bill will actually be passed. Is this a point at which Americans should be paying attention that like this is likely going to be the thing? Or could this end up being just another example of infrastructure looking like it's going to happen and then blowing up? Yeah, I think that the folks on the Hill would tell you that they see the first real opportunity in a long time to actually get something done. I mean, we saw a number of Democrats and Republicans get up last night at like 930 or so and speak on the Senate floor and talk about how this is how the what the founding fathers intended, at least in the words of Kirsten Cinema, you know, as she sought to make the point that we know that this has been a long and and sometimes difficult process, but we are proud this evening to announce this legislation, and we look forward very much to working with our colleagues in a collaborative and open way over the coming days. They worked really hard and they disagreed sometimes, but they finally got something that they agreed on that they thought could pass. But really only time will tell. There are so many moving parts and so many concerns and so little margin of error, both in the House and the Senate, that one one stumbling block, one disagreement could sink the whole thing. And so I think it's the sort of situation where lawmakers have to be committed to actually seeing this through and committed to resolving their differences. Because if they're not, we'll, we'll very quickly see yet another attempt at infrastructure reform go up in flames in Washington. Tony Rahm is a congressional reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. Like a lot of Americans, we on Post Reports have been keeping up with the women's gymnastics in the Olympics, especially Team USA. On Tuesday, Simone Biles will return to compete in the balance beam final. It will be her first and last Olympic event since withdrawing from the team finals last week. Follow coverage of that event at WashingtonPost.com. And if you missed it, go back and listen to our conversation with sports reporter Liz Clark about the pressure on Biles in the Olympics. There's very much risk at play every time she competes against herself, which is the only metric she knows. Like, I'm going to be better than I was. 
yesterday. And it's a, it's, we can't imagine the toll that this takes and the strength it takes to keep getting up for this. Find a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. Don't forget to send us a voice memo with your back-to-masking Delta variant questions. Send those to postreports at washpost.com. We can't wait to hear them. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.